Today's scripture reading is found in 1 Samuel, chapter 16, verses 1 to 23. Turn now to your text in the Bible to follow along, or the reading is behind me on the screen. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. <coughs> Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes, and was handsome, and the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servants said to him, Behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, who is skilled in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat, and sent them by David his son to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. 
And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Thanks, Vivian. You can be seated. We're going to try to cover this, this whole chapter um, but, but I want us to start in a place as, this is, this is a new beginning. Uh, last week we ended, Saul ended that uh, period in uh, 1 Samuel and are now launching out to David. And many of us know, I will use this word, a lot of things about David. And we know a lot of things about David because the Bible and our scriptures point to a lot of different things about David. In particular, if you're like me, you grew up as a church kid, right? You were in Sunday school, which I love Sunday school. Barbara Brandis was my Sunday school teacher. She did a phenomenal job of teaching me stories about David on the flannel graph and all this stuff. But I bring some of those prior teachings, pre-existing uh, maybe notions about who David is, what David is about, to the text, and so what I've been praying for my own heart and for us as a community as we wade through 1 Samuel and begin this, uh, this section on David is that it, the Holy Spirit would allow us to wipe clean the slate of our minds and our hearts. Not because of the sermons you've heard prior or the Sunday school classes you've been taught are wrong or not at all. But I just am asking that the Holy Spirit would give us fresh eyes and a fresh heart to receive what the Lord wants for us from this text. And 1 Samuel 16 is one of those texts and those chapters that just surprised me. Right? This is the beginning. This is the introduction to King David that we know so much about. This is his introduction, what Vivian just read. I love Eugene Peterson and the way he puts it um, when we're trying to study our Bibles or looking at a passage. He says that the Lord is trying to train us in an awareness of God's quiet but decisive presence when human beings are making all the noise. Right, So there will be all of these things as we journey forward in 1 Samuel with David, and even as we get into 1 Samuel chapter 17, right? David and Goliath next week. But what God is trying to do is trying to show us his heart, trying to show us who he is. Yes, through people like David and Saul and all these other instruments, but the heart of it is, can we see God? Can we see his involvement? Can we see his working. And I'm convinced in 1 Samuel 16 that God is working a story so much deeper than we can possibly imagine. Sometimes more than we can even perceive on the surface. There is a time distance between verse 13, keep your Bible, verse 13 there, and verse 14. A time gap that many scholars believe is about 20 years. So we have the first section, 1 through 13. Then we have the second section, 14 through 23. And in the middle, there's a time gap. And this is going to make sense next week when we get to David and Goliath. And Saul's like, who's that out there? Who, David who? I mean, Vivian just read a text where it says that Saul loved David. Like, is he, is, does he have amnesia? No, the chronology is different. The chronological order in these passages are, if you will, out of order in chronological order. However, they are in perfect theological order. They're in perfect theological order, okay? And I'm going to describe that, Lord willing, over the next few moments to see what the Lord would show us about himself. 
And so let's look at this, verses one through three. The first move in this story is actually one of human fear. Like I feel like it's, it's, it's very relatable. Again, this is David's entry point. This is David coming onto the scene. And it really begins with Samuel concerned with what has just been spoken to him by the Lord. The Lord says, listen, I want you to go to Bethlehem and I want you to anoint one of Jesse's sons to be king. And Samuel, you know, the response, he's like, hold up. If I go do that, Saul is going to kill me. Saul is still king, if you will, right? We went through last week. I'm not going to go through it again. Saul is king. And if he knows that Samuel is going, Samuel's going, my life is over. Now here I want to contrast last week with Saul's partial obedience. What is obedience as I described it last week? Do you remember? Obedience is listening to God's word. Listening and doing. It's not just hearing it, but it's actually putting it into practice. That's what obedience is. And what we saw last week out of Saul was that he did partial obedience, which is just another word for disobedience. Here with Samuel, The word of the Lord comes to him. Samuel gives a human emotion back to the Lord going, listen, this is scary. My life might be lost if Saul finds out. I might lose my literal life. But Samuel is still obedient. There is full obedience in Samuel because what does he do? He listens to the word of the Lord and he heads to Bethlehem. But I also love the mercy in this passage as well. Because the Lord also gives him away, understanding Samuel's fear and apprehension, he gives him away by saying, take a heifer, take it to sacrifice. It's not just this riding in, you know, on a donkey going, I'm going to anoint the king. It's this way of the Lord going, okay, Samuel, I hear your heart. I see you, your obedience. Here's what I want you to do. But it's not just Samuel's fear in the text. Did you notice this? That it's also Bethlehem's, the elders, Because the elders respond when Samuel shows up in town. The the elders respond and go, have you come peaceably? Like, first off, what a reputation Samuel must have had as a prophet of God, right? The priest of God. When you show up, people like, easy, man. Like, Like, first off, let's just think about that from Samuel's perspective. That'd be a little lonely, wouldn't it? I'm gonna tell you, true obedience to God Truly listening to God will cause moments in situations where you feel alone, horizontally, right? Not, never vertically. And so they say, um, do you come peaceably? Samuel assures them, I've not come with a rebuke. You guys have not done anything wrong. I come peaceably, right? And he says, he says, hey, go get Jesse and his sons and, and bring your sons here. And this is where... David, or the beginning of David's anointing, starts, and it starts in the most unlikely of fashions. And this is what I want you to see. I want you to see how ordinary this chapter is, actually. All the components, as the narrator of 1 Samuel trying to bring out, is nothing extraordinary. It's actually the mundane. It's actually how unlikely and how ordinary all of these different things are. Because, listen, if I'm writing a story about anointing a king, just, just let's go with me. I'm starting on the battlefield with David beating to Goliath, right? Aren't you? Like you want to start a new chapter? You want to start a new kingship? Let's go to the battlefield, right? Where the little guy defeats the the, the giant and that's it. Yes, that's where it begins. But that's not what the narrator starts. That's not where the Holy Spirit inspires the writer of 1 Samuel to begin. He inspires the, the, the author of 1 Samuel to begin in the ordinary. 
in the mundane, in the spaces and places nobody else looks like Bethlehem. Again, wash some of that, that, the, the, those, those, those preconceived ideas about Bethlehem out of your mind, right? You hear a song about Jesus when you hear Bethlehem. I want you to think about what Bethlehem the city actually was. It was a nowhere's town, right? It was like Blue Ridge, okay? Like, sorry if you're from Blue Ridge or like Leonard, Bells. Anybody know where Bells is? Anybody? Okay, no, I didn't think so, right? It's North Texas, okay? Like, it was just one of those cities that is only known based upon how close it is to the big city, like Dallas. Like, yeah, Blue Ridge is about 45 minutes from Dallas. That's how everybody knows it. That's Bethlehem. That's this place, or ordinary. And so it for sure startles them when the prophet of God, when the priest of God shows up in their town. Even more startling when he calls Jesse and his sons to them. And then what happens is almost comical. And the point here that I, that I want to make is this. Is that God's ways are not like our ways. God's eyes see differently than our eyes. That's what verse 7 sees, says. So, so let's, let's go through this scene with Samuel and Jesse and his seven sons. And the first son that comes out, as Samuel looks at, is Eliab. Eliab comes, and Samuel, look in the text. Samuel goes, that's the guy. That's him. Surely, he says, that's the one we're looking for to anoint as king. He's got the height. He's the oldest. Maybe he's got the background as a warrior. On the surface, external surface, Eliab has everything Samuel thinks the Lord is looking for. In verse 7, the Lord says what to that? Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees, not as man sees, here it is, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. This is how our God operates. This is his mode of operation as it comes to whom he is going to anoint as king. Even Samuel, get this, Samuel, the high priest, the prophet of God, misses it. And the Lord goes, no, Samuel, I want you to see with my eyes. My eyes see differently than you do. And if we're honest, let's just, let's just bring it a little closer to home. This idea of external appearances is where we live. This is the culture by which we swim in, right? Thousands of years ago, this was a problem. It's still true today because it's the condition of human heart. We look with our literal eyes upon someone or something and go, that's right. That's good. That's success. That's what it looks like. And the Lord goes, no, listen, the Lord does not look upon externals. The Lord looks on what? Internals, the heart. I mean, social media. Social media is the playground, is the world of appearances. And as believers, listen, we have to understand that God's sight, God's eyes see and operate differently than ours do. And so listen, it makes us slow down, at least it should. And I feel like that's what the Lord's doing here with Samuel to go, Samuel, stop. Samuel, slow down. You started with the, the best and the tallest. You remember, um, you remember the word tall in 1 Samuel as it related to Saul was the same word for glory. You look at the external glory of Eliab and you go, surely that's it. And the Lord goes, no, I'm looking at the internal glory 
of myself. In 1 Samuel 13, I believe it's verse 14 of that chapter, the Lord who has rejected Saul at that point says that I am going to find a king after my own heart. Right? You've, you've heard that about David time and time again. He's a man after God's own heart. This was prior to David ever entering the scene. God goes, here's my king that I'm going to choose, one who has a heart that is unified to mine. That's what the Lord is saying because that's what the Lord looks at. That's what the Lord is desiring. What does the Lord mean when, or what really is the Lord looking for when it says that he looks at the heart? You want to know what the Lord's looking for? It's not tallness. It's not pride. It's actually lowness. It's those that are humble of heart. Now take that same application. Okay, I know I'm not teaching it this week, but next week, 1 Samuel chapter 17. You could just look at surface David and Goliath, the low defeating the tall, the humble defeating the proud. Second Chronicles about the eyes of the Lord say this. This is chapter 16, verse 9. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose hearts is blameless toward him. That's what the eyes of the Lord are doing constantly looking over here, over there. For who? Those puffed up with pride? No, th those who find themselves low and humble. And I love what it says about what God does and how he responds to them. What happens? He gives them his strong support. Samuel's going, Eliab, let's give him, Lord, your strong support. He's the one who's strong. He's the one who's glorious. And God goes, nope, there's someone else. And so then this is where it kind of gets comical to me. Um, the other two sons are named, right? They bring them through. Here's this one. Here's this one. Then the other four that come through before uh, Samuel, they're not even named. They're just like, and he had four other sons that ran by him. Like, they're just like, whatever. And, and, and Samuel's like, nope, nope. Thought it was that one. Nope, nope. Gets there probably with Jesse and is like, you got another one? And Jesse's like, actually, I do, right? And I don't know if Jesse, like once you have like five, six, seven kids, if you're just like, I don't know how many more we have after this, but I know we got some somewhere, right? It's like, where did I put my checkbook? You know, it's just like this kid. And, and so he's like, he's like, yes, I have one more. And he's in my field watching my sheep, right? And so he brings him in, and, and in the ESV, you can look at it, it says, there remains, this is verse 11, there remains the youngest. Some of your versions, if you look at it, it says, there yet remains the smallest. So it's probably, you said, which is it, youngest or smallest? Yes. It's probably the youngest and smallest, the eighth son, David. And so then it says that David then comes send him and get him, and he sent him and brought him. Now he was ruddy and beautiful, be had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Again, wipe your slate clean of what you know about David in the future. This is his introduction. He's the overlooked eighth son who doesn't even show up early on. These seven go through, and, and, and Samuel has to remind Jesse about his other son that he has out in the field, and he shows up, and it says that he's, he's ruddy with pretty eyes and handsome. 
Doesn't seem like this spectacular kingly introduction that's meant to lead Israel, but God goes, I see his heart. I see something that none of you can see. And that idea of ruddy, um, the word ruddy there, seems like a weird word. Some translators translate that as red-headed. I don't even know what to do with that. I don't think that's a good translation. I just wanted to share that with you. Um, what ruddy means in Hebrew is that he shows up like full of life. I don't have eight sons. I don't have eight kids, but I have three. I have a youngest. And honestly, like the youngest always just shows up like, woo! You know what? Hey, if you want to stick around after service, watch how he comes in here, right? It might be from the balcony down. It might be from the, we don't know. But he just shows up like full of life. Like that's the idea here because you're like, Kyle, those descriptions seem like external explanations, Ruddy and beautiful eyes. Like, those are not external uh, uh, explanations. Those actually are describing him being perceived as full of life and being full of light. It's not talking about his baby blue eyes, okay? It's talking about how he's perceived, somebody who is just full of life and vigor, where Samuel looks at him and goes, all right, Lord, I, this is still a little confusing to me, but I trust you, and I see it in him. And now handsome, I think that is an external description of him. And he was the eighth son. That's purposeful. Many of you are familiar with, with the number seven and that being biblically significant, right? The number of completion. The number eight also has biblical significance. The number eight, biblically, when you see that, means a new beginning. So here we have David, the eighth son, who is going to be a new beginning for Israel. Not just governmentally, but spiritually as well. And so I just, I just paused here this week, thinking about this introduction to David. And I'm like, this seems just so unusual. It seems so anticlimactic, if you will. Until I was looking at David's unlikeliness, David's overlookedness, if you will, and honestly, in those two things, that should make him the obvious choice for who God is going to anoint. Paul puts it like this in 1 Corinthians. He says, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. We talked about God's mode of operation and not seeing as our eyes see, not working like we work but God's choosing of instruments and things is this, that he chooses what's low, right? And again, some of you are making the jump to Jesus. That is right. That's the right jump. But here with David, it's the same jump. Those that no one sees, the forgotten, the left off, the unmemorable. Here's David rolling up on the scene and Samuel lays his hands upon him to anoint him as king of Israel, lacking the external qualities of his brother. And then the Bible says in verse 13 that the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him at that anointing. And this is where we know that David has the favor of the Lord, that the spirit of the Lord is upon him. And then verse 14. Verse 14 comes, and we believe something like 20 years later would be the scene. 
And it says that the Spirit, to contrast verse 13, the Spirit has what? Departed from Saul. And in this Spirit departing, there's something else that happens. That this, and this is very difficult to translate, I'm just being honest with you, that an evil spirit or a harmful spirit is sent by the Lord to Saul. Now, some of your translations say evil. Some of them, like the ESV, say harmful. Some of yours say a different word there, again, just because of the difficulty of translation. But all of our translations say this, by the Lord. That this evil spirit, this tormenting spirit, this harmful spirit was allowed by the Lord. You say, Kyle, how? How and why? Why would this be allowed by the Lord? Well, let's think about Saul's life. Let's think about Saul's life up to this point, passages of scripture, chapters that we've walked through. What has been Saul's resume? Partial obedience. It's been one of disobedience. It's been him rejecting God time and time again and building his primary, his primary objective, his primary goal, Saul's primary goal, has been to build a kingdom about himself. To build not the kingdom of God by faithfully leading God's people, but to build the kingdom of Saul. You see, when disobedience is allowed in our lives, when the root of disobedience is not dealt with in our lives, we are left to deal with the consequences. And the consequence for Saul and his continual rejection of God and his disobedience is a tormenting spirit. He's tormented. And I know that's a heavy word, but I think this is a strong warning. He, he finds himself disordered. He finds himself outside of the order and the covering of God, and he's tormented. Listen, that's what happens in disobedience. That's what happens when we find ourselves outside of the covering of God. When we go against the things that God wants in our lives, there is this tormenting, there is this evilness, if you will, that takes place in our lives, this wrestling. Paul, in, in Romans 1, I, I want to describe a couple places where this happens. In Romans 1, Paul says this. He says, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God. So the presence of God, God's glory, for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, here it is in verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to go on down the list. Did you see that in verse 24? God gave them up. Gave them up to their lusts, gave them up to their desires, gave them up to what they wanted more than anything. So this, with the image of Saul, is the same thing going on. Saul, you want God in your life to be you? Here it is. And when that happens, the Bible is very clear what takes place in Saul. Tormenting. Conflict in his spirit and in his soul. Uh, Exodus chapter 7 is another place where this happens where it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Remember that verse? God, why would you do that? You wanna know why God does that? It's because he's just responding to the way Pharaoh has lived his whole life. He was handing Pharaoh over to his desires, his lust, his way. God goes, you want your way? I'll give you your way. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened. But what I find interesting is places like 1 John 4, verse 19. It says this, that we love God, 
right? So on the, on the positive side, we love God, why? Because he first loved us. So think about this. With disobedience, with rejection, without coming underneath and outside of the order of God, God allows this period of his time and his grace and his mercy and his patience to go forth. But there is a time where God goes, you want that? Take it. And we are left with the consequences of that. But his love on the other side, he loves us first, and then we then respond to his love. It's a beautiful kind of paradox, if you will. And Saul seeks a solution for the torment, doesn't he? Look at it in the text. And Saul's solution for the torment is music. It's music. And this was not uncommon in the ancient world. But it says at the end in verse 23 that, that Saul, by this music, was refreshed and was well. And the harmful spirit departed from him. Let me make a point to say here. Do not mistake refreshing for true regeneration and salvation. Saul did not have a heart change in in these worship sets, if you will. What Saul has by this music is therapy and not the spirit of God. And we have to be careful not to confuse temporary relief for true healing that God wants to offer and extend to us. Many of us maybe have just been okay with with Christian or church therapy, right? Positive feelings in these times where we we feel good, but we've not actually allowed the Holy Spirit to move in our lives. And one of the, the greatest warnings we could give you in love this morning is to not exchange proximity to the things of God or the people of God to replace God himself. And what God wants to to give you this morning and us this morning is himself. Not just proximity to his glory, but his very glory in the person and work of Jesus Christ this morning. Saul was good with David playing his harp. It relieved him temporarily. And we'll see as we walk through 1 and 2 Samuel how this plays itself out. But I think it is a warning to us this morning to not buy this idea of mere therapeutic temporary relief in exchange for true healing that Jesus is offering to us this morning. And I just can't get over the fact of the one who suggested to play for King Saul. David. The one whom God has anointed to take Saul's spot. You see, this is so upside down for me that David, who has been anointed king at this point, is sitting there with the king who has been rejected by God, bringing benefit to him. Not overthrowing him with violence or power, but submitting to him. Submitting his gifts to him, but not just to him, to the glory of God. Get this picture as we end. All the ancient kings we run into, even in our Bible, by and large, they all come to power through the battlefield through triumph, through these visible victories. And let me tell you, David has those, and we'll see them in the story. But in 1 Samuel chapter 16, where it begins, David shows up in a field, forgotten as the eighth son, with a harp to the rejected king, King Saul. He doesn't show up on the scene at the very beginning with fighting, but with a song? Where's the battle? Where's the fanfare? Where's the crowds hoisting up David and going, yeah, this is our king. Look at him. 
But this makes complete sense if you look and remember how the book of 1 Samuel actually began. Do you remember? 77 weeks ago when we started it? (laughs) Chapter 1 of 1 Samuel begins not with Samuel or a king or triumph, but 1 Samuel chapter 1 begins with a woman who is barren. A woman who is grieving. A woman who is desperate before the Lord. And you remember she goes and Eli the high priest is like, hey, how long are you going to keep drinking, woman? Remember that? And she's pleading before the Lord. She's desperate. She's pouring herself out. And the Lord meets her there. You remember that scene? He meets her there. And it says that he lifts her up, he stands her up, and her whole countenance has changed. Why? Because the presence of God now has moved in her heart, in her life. And you know what's next? A victory, a pregnant, no! Look at it, 1 Samuel 2, we went over it. I can't believe you guys have forgotten this. What happens is she sings a song. A song of victory. Pregnancy hasn't occurred. Samuel's not been born. There's not been any quote-unquote earthly victories. What has happened is the victory, the most important victory, has taken place in Hannah's heart, and the Lord stands her up, and she stands up in his confidence, and some of the lines and the lyrics that she sings are things like this. My heart exalts the Lord. My horn is exalted. My life, in other words, is lifted up, and she sings this. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. It's what we're seeing here play out in 1 Samuel chapter 16. Hannah's been singing about it, listen, and now David is singing about it with Saul before him. It is a song, it's a song, it's a song. You go to Revelation. A final word in Revelation, if you will, is a song. A song of victory, a song of triumph, but a song sang in the most obscure ways in places. That these songs are meant meant to point us to a God who is working a victory at times and most times, if you will much deeper than we can perceive or even notice with our eyes. But God is working, he's moving, and he's using the most unlikely and the most ordinary ways that in the mundaneness and the ordinariness of your life, the the places maybe you're like, I don't even know if God's involved, I don't know if God's doing, he is. He's moving and he's working for his glory so that his presence can be made known, that his presence would be what's most important to us, not these earthly victories. Yes, that he does bring and he will bring, right? But there may be some losses that on the surface we look as losses that he's going, actually, I'm gonna redeem them for your good and for my glory and I'm gonna show you what this life is all about. Don't miss it. I mean, this is Isaiah 53, the prophetic chapter about Jesus. You know that one 700 years prior to Christ. Isaiah is going, get ready. Get ready because this is what he's going to look like. He's going to be rejected and despised by men. He's going to be a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Some of you need to hear that, that Jesus is the suffering servant, acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Verse 5, but 
He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And here it is. And with his wounds, we are healed. Victorious. That's what victory looks like. And 1 Samuel 16 is setting up the new king for Israel. And God's going, wait, 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 wait. Don't fix your eyes upon him. Fix your eyes upon me, the king of kings, the one who is working in all things, victory and healing, ultimately seen in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I'm gonna pray for us and then host ushers get ready as we prepare our hearts to take communion. What are the ordinary ways that God is moving in your life that you're missing? We're so fixed upon the spectacular. That's the externals, right? What are the ordinary ways in which God is moving and sustaining and healing that you're missing? For some of you, what are the ways that you have rejected the covering of God in disobedience? I met with a, a man right after the 9 a.m. service, and he said, uh, he shared his story with me decades ago, he was struggling with an addiction, strong addiction in his life. He says, you want to know when the Lord broke that addiction for me? He says, the Lord broke that addiction in me when I felt the absence of God's presence. When he got a taste of what it's really like when the Lord removes his hand. And some of you have got a taste of that and you have not run to the Lord yet, but this morning is the morning. This morning is the morning where you run to the source of healing and freedom. You've tasted and you've seen, and that life is not good, it's torment. But this morning you're gonna taste and see that the Lord is good, that his grace is sufficient, that his grace is here to liberate and free you, to set you free from the captor. Father, do that in my heart. Do that in us as a church and a community for your glory. Forgive us for having eyes that see external things and not asking for your spirit to give us eyes that see the heart. Father, I pray that we would steward these moments where we get communion and we come back for your glory. Holy Spirit, convict. Holy Spirit, comfort and move like only you can. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.